Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Paul Rickard, filling in for Peter Switzer. On tonight's program, we start with Marcus Bogdan, the Chief Investment Officer with Blackmore Capital. Reporting season is almost at an end, and Marcus shares his thoughts on the companies and sectors that have done really well. Some really interesting insights into a couple of telcos that you don't want to miss. Nicola Powell is the Head of Research at Domain, and uh, her company's done some really interesting research into the history of property prices, and really some surprising conclusions that downturns tend to be pretty short and sharp. Uh, and from that, she's largely concluded that uh, this current downturn we're in is unlikely to take us back to pre-pandemic levels. So some insights that, at least in her view, that the market, the medium term outlook for the market is actually a lot more healthy than a lot of the commentators are suggesting it's gonna be. And finally, Simon Presley from uh, Property Etology, uh, he looks at some of the growth factors that are driving the property market and names the suburbs and towns that he thinks could do really well. So stick around for the show for tonight. Uh, let's kick off with Marcus Bogdan from Blackmore Capital. Well, we're coming to the end of reporting season. There's been uh, some interesting results have come out. Joining me now to get a sense of uh, what we've learned in reporting season and some of the stocks he's really like is Marcus Bogdan. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Blackmore Capital. Marcus, welcome to the program. Good to see you, Paul. Let's start by just getting your sense overall. I mean, I've seen some anecdata, some data earlier in the week that said things weren't going quite as well. I mean, what's your take on sort of now that we're sort of 80% through reporting season, how it's gone? Well, we've certainly seen moderation in earnings growth, uh, and that was largely to be ex expected. Uh, so uh, sales revenue has held up very well, uh, but you are starting to see some pressures there on margin, uh, and that's uh, and that's slowed EPS and DPS growth um, across this reporting season. But nothing really unusual, and I, I think. Uh, Expect, in, within expectation that uh, we were going to see earnings growth. It was certainly going to be slower than the pre previous corresponding per period, uh, but net net uh, growth both in earnings and dividends. And what about um, outlook statements? So I was expecting many CEOs to be pretty cautious about what they say going forward, given the environment with uh, inflation and costs and. Yeah, just a general, there's not a lot of upside in being too aggressive in terms of uh, looking ahead. But they don't seem to be, well, my take at least, I'm interested in your take, uh, is that they don't seem to have been quite as conservative as I expected. Is that a, is that a sort of an assessment that, that, that you would agree with? And um, just get, you know, I think that's really important for thinking about how their market moves ahead. Sure. Well, I think it's testament that the underlying economy is still sound. We've got full employment uh, and domestic demand continues to be strong and so I think that that has been more supportive uh, of those of those statements going forward uh, and it's interesting to see how um, they're, they're tackling uh, obviously higher costs and though and that cost composition is changing you know we are seeing you know slight improvements in supply in supply chains mm -hmm. um, and then Things like staff 
uh, absenteeism is starting to slowly improve as well. So, look, there are some ongoing negatives on costs, but there's also signs of some sort of moderation. And then when we've spoken to some of the consumer staple companies, uh, they are actually quite positive uh, coming into uh, the Christmas period, which is obviously a critical period for their, for their sales. So both uh, Coles reported yesterday and Woolworths reported this morning, and you probably haven't had a chance to catch up with uh, those executives, but uh, perhaps a little bit on the disappointing side was my take, but just to, and that's how the market treated the result. Um, but uh, any, any comments from you, particularly about the uh, Woolworths result this morning? Yeah, and I think there's a third company uh, that also reported which, uh, which disappointed the market, uh, and that was Endeavour Group, which mm. was the, the spin-out of Woolworths, of, of Dan Murphy, BWS, and the hotels business. Uh, and look, it has been an incredibly demanding period for big, big retailers and to be able to deliver uh, their services and their products in the last six, six months. They're facing chronic um, staff shortages, um, there's inflationary pressures there, um, disruptions in supply chains. Um, and so, and that was reflected in, in their results. Uh, and you could see the cost pressures there, the cost of doing business was, was, was up. Um, but I do think, um, particularly on Endeavour and Woolworths, uh, there are some more encouraging signs of sort of more normalised tra trading patterns. And you could expect um, that there could be some improvement in margins on, the, on both of those businesses. I think the Coles result uh, was uh, that they're growing below market and that was certainly evident uh, in a much stronger sales result from Woolworths today. Uh, but I would look at the, the, the price compression that we're seeing in some of those stocks as more of an opportunity rather than being um, overly cautious. Yeah, they both seem to suggest a lot of the COVID-related costs were going to sort of, once they disappear, but ease, the, those pressures would ease in the, uh, as we go into FY23. Let's go to a couple of the defensive industrials that, that you like. Uh, two that I think uh, you feel reported strongly. Let's start with, uh, with Amcor. Well, Amcor has done remarkably well uh, throughout the pandemic, and it's one of the few stocks uh, that has actually had positive jaws in the sense that earnings have been able to grow at a faster rate uh, than, than rev revenue. Uh, and they've been particular, I mean, they're, they're lucky in the sense that they are facing into Northern Hemisphere consumer staple markets. Mm -hmm. uh, they've tilted their portfolio to more higher end packaging uh, and they've executed incredibly well and, and they are one of the few stocks that have upgraded their guidance uh, throughout the last 18 months or so and they indicated again uh, uh, good revenue and earnings growth expected for uh, 2023. And what about uh, Brambles? It used to be I guess part of many people's portfolios fell out of favour but uh, it seems like the market thought its uh, report was very strong. It was, uh, it was a stronger result uh, and they were, uh, at the time of their um, investor day in September 2021, uh, they were suggesting only of profit growth of about 1%, 1%. 
but uh, they've been able to, again, like Amcor, uh, through contractual pass-throughs and surcharges, um, to deliver a much better earnings growth profile of sort of mid to high single digits uh, across uh, their key markets of both the US and Europe. And again, it's another company, I think that's uh, it's, it's a global leader in pallets uh, that has executed particularly well um, over the last uh, nine to 12 months. Let's go to a defensive stock uh, locally, uh, uh, Medicare, sorry, Medibank, I should say. Uh, it really in the financial sector, but very defensive. I mean, it's it continues to uh, move forward, doesn't it? It does. And um, look, Medibank um, uh, has seen um, good market shares and they've seen good underlying growth at an industry level. And that's probably not surprising as, as people are far more aware of, of health outcomes. Uh, you can see the congestion and the, and the problems in the public system, mm -hmm. particularly on waiting lists. Uh, and so the private sector as an alternative uh, looks particularly attractive. Uh, but many are in a strong position. They are getting revenue growth. They are gaining market market share. And uh, for the moment, the, indus the industry is growing. And so many banks in the portfolio, uh, which will show modest growth, but an attractive dividend yield of around 4%, fully franked. And you know, when you talk about market share, I don't think we should underestimate how hard that is with, when you're the market leader. There's a, what, 40 odd health insurers in Australia, you've got 27, 28% market share. It is really hard to grow it, right? When you're, when you're the market leader. And I think that's a, that's a huge achievement for that company. Um, and then let's absolutely. And I know you like some of the, in the in the telco sector, which is um, a couple of companies there that have, you think have done well. Well, I, I think um, telcos have been the standout for me in this reporting season, and that's primarily uh, Telstra mm -hmm. and Spark New Zealand, which was the the, the you know the, the previous incumbent uh, uh, in in the New Zealand market. And both companies uh, have increased their dividend for the first time in six or seven years. And I think that's a reflection that the underlying uh, operations of those businesses have improved. Uh, they're benefiting from very uh, strong markets, in, particularly in mobiles. Uh, and, the, and the industries are acting rationally and they're being able to pass on price increases at the rate, at the rate of, of inflation. So attractive dividends which are starting to grow for the first time. And the other element which I like about the telco, those two particular telcos is that they, uh, their ability to monetize their infrastructure assets. Mm. And both of those companies uh, have sold down uh, their mobile towers businesses. Uh, for very, very uh, attractive prices. Uh, and those proceeds have allowed them to um, invest back into growth, reduce debt and increase dividends. Uh, and so and each of those businesses, like Medibank, they, I mean, these are slow growing businesses, but I think the momentum for both of those uh, companies is, uh, is encouraging. And Telstra still holds, I think, 51% of the business, I think it calls Ampli Tel. Um, so potentially that could uh, be divested for, 
you know, might be very keenly sought after by uh, some uh, super funds at some stage. Is that the thinking there? Yes, there is. I mean, there, there's still further scope uh, for monetization of, of infrastructure and also, um, you, know, uh, you know, the classical ducks and, and, and the copper, um, which is also going through, uh, which needs legislative approval. But that uh, scheme of arrangement has been issued now. And finally, a company that you spoke about a few months back, uh, Integral Diagnostics, that hasn't gone so well. So what are your thoughts on, on that company? Uh, so Integral Diagnostics is the fourth largest uh, radiology company in Australia. Uh, and some parts of healthcare uh, have been absolutely affected by the pandemic mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that uh, uh, there's been a, a huge curtailment in elective surgery and also general screening at a GP level. Uh, and in, integral diagnostics, it's seen quite a significant downturn in their underlying business. But when you look at uh, radiology and diagnostic volumes over a 10 and 15 year period, uh, the industry tends to grow at sort of mid single digit levels. Yep. Uh, the most recent report for the industry showed contractions are around 4%. So I do think um, it is an essential industry that screening is, is absolutely fundamental. Uh, and then and you are going to see a return to elective surgery. And so that those revenue and, and earnings uh, growth rates will go back to more normalised levels. Uh, and hence, um, and hence why we still hold it in the in the portfolio. And is there opportunities or likely to be more consolidation in that market or uh, is, is that part of the attraction as well from, from, from you as an investor for you? Yes, yeah, so it is in two parts. I mean, for the companies that we want to invest in, we're always emphasise good organic growth mm -hmm. and I think that that will recover. But um, there is uh, continues to be industry consolidation uh, and integral have been a, a, a key part of their growth growth strategy has been um, acquiring smaller radiology groups and I think that that will uh, con continue um, and so you'll see both growth the normalized organic growth coupled with that uh, coupled with acquisition growth as well which should lead to earnings growth in the high single digits going forward. Well, Marcus, some very interesting insights about uh, reporting season, particularly uh, the comment around uh, Telstra and uh, Spark infrastructure being amongst the, the highlights. So, look, thanks for uh, joining us on Switzer. That was Marcus Bogdan, the Chief Investment Officer at Blackmore Capital. Well, some of the data out of the weekend suggested that there might have been a bit of an upswing in the property market with uh, higher auction clearance rates. But also there's some new research from Domain that says that uh, yeah, downswings in the property market are typically pretty short and maybe we won't get, a, get the prices won't go back to pre-pandemic levels. Joining me now to discuss that is Nicola Powell. She's the Head of Research and, Econ and Chief Economist with Domain. Nicola, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So you put out this research about upswings and downswings in the property market. Um, do you want to just take us through your chief conclusions of that research? 
So what we did is we looked at the past 30 years of upswings and downturns across Australia's combined capital cities because we seem to have this kind of view that Australian house prices go through these wild boom and bust phases. Mm -hmm. But actually what this research showed is we go through periods of gains and quite often surging house prices across our combined capital cities. And then it's followed by a period of slight decline and sometimes even flatlined prices. So, you know, in some of our cities such as Adelaide and Canberra, as an example, you know, there's been periods of time where they haven't actually gone backwards, they've just gone sideways. And what we found is if you average out the length and the percentage of an upswing versus the downturn, what we found is an upswing is always or tends to be longer mm -hmm. and also see is a greater percentage gain respective to the downturn that then follows. I don't think those two statements would have been used to any property investor. That's why property prices are so much higher today than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago, right? Because that's what markets do. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's, uh, it's interesting that about there's a lot of media sort of hype around property. And as you say, it does tend to be a fairly, at least on average, a fairly stable asset. So, um, yeah, look, when you have a look at those upswings um, across the combined capitals, house prices on average during an upswing have increased by 33 mm percent. -hmm. The downturn um, as a comparison is negative 3 percent. Right. So we see these surges in price. And I think, you know, what this really proves and feeds into is that we need to step back and actually look as property as that asset that is a longer term investment. Because what the research feeds into, it's not timing the market that is important. And it's really hard to pick, pick a peak and pick a trough. But it's actually the time spent in the market that really counts. And I think when you take a step back, timing becomes much less important. Um, and really, you know, when you're making your property decisions, you need to make Make those decisions at a time when it's right for yourself. Yeah, I think anyone who's bought property and held onto it for the long term knows that they never knew where they were buying at the at, at the bottom of the market yeah. or the top of the market. But 10, 20, 40 years later, who cares, right? It's gone up so much. So uh, look, I, I think we also talk about that in the share market, right? Time in the market rather than timing. No one picks bottoms and no one picks the tops, yeah. right? So but why do you think we get Absolutely. so excited about it all? What, what drives all the media hype around, you know, that wants to tell us the property market's collapsing or prices are surging. I mean, it's not the data clearly doesn't show that, does it? It, it, it doesn't. I mean, we do see property prices pull back. Um, you know, during the last uh, 30 years, there's been four periods of time across our combined capital cities where we've seen house prices on that annual basis go backwards. Mm. Four years in the you know, periods of time over the last 30 years. I think, you know, as a nation, I find this really interesting. I'm, I'm from the UK originally, and we just don't have this obsession with real estate. You know, I've lived in Australia for more than a decade. And, you know, we are just so obsessed with property. I think we see it as a vehicle to build um, our financial wealth and intergenerational mm. wealth. I think you know what we've seen uh, during the pandemic in terms of such an acceleration of house prices is that it has created that intergenerational wealth for families and you know in some areas when you look towards the Mornington Peninsula they've seen extraordinary rates of price growth since the pandemic began and it's like a luxury win to some families um, and I think you know we're so invested um, you know there's more of us in Australia that actually owns 
uh, a property. There are you know, a number of us who own uh, you know, investment properties as well. We see it as a way to build that generational wealth, build our own wealth pool and you know, fund retirements as well. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's go back a little bit closer to home. Let's talk about the market at the moment. So um, enough theory, let's talk about practice. So what are we seeing out there at the moment? I mean, uh, some of the regional areas are still reasonably, reasonably hot. So just sort of put in context your view about those areas where there seems to be a lot of interest and the areas where you know, it seems to be a bit tougher at the moment. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, the key rule of thumb here is that we have seen momentum loss within our housing market, generally speaking, across Australia. While there are still areas their prices are rising, they're not rising to the level that we were seeing, um, you know, during the height of the, the boom. What we're seeing at the moment is a bit of a multi-speed capital city market. We're seeing greater weakness in our higher priced markets, mm -hmm. such as Sydney and Melbourne. But when you pick out those areas and kind of drill down, you know, the, the areas that are seeing the greater weakness are those more premium price points. So, you know, areas like the eastern suburbs, um, northern beaches, um, inner west, uh, north Sydney and Hornsby, you know, those really kind of premium pockets uh, of Sydney. The areas, it's really interesting when you kind of do that comparison of the areas that are seeing uh, the weakest growth and sometimes negative versus the areas that are seeing the strongest rates of growth. All of those areas that are seeing the strongest rates of growth based on an SA4 slice of Australia geography, mm -hmm. it's really still in those regional markets, Brisbane as well, Adelaide as well. You know, these are still our uh, stronger performers in across Australia. Yeah, maybe they've got the better growth uh, dynamics question mark. So what are we, um, in terms of just looking at, uh, at the capital cities though, I mean, the markets that have been hot, as I understand it, like Hobart are still pretty warm. Right? Um, so, or, or do you think that sort of, uh, it sort of got a bit too expensive for itself and, and now the market's sort of just caught up to, uh, yeah, the growth was too strong there? Look, areas like Hobart and, and, you know, some of those regional markets affect regional Tasmania as well, because I think it becomes an affordability issue getting people into regional Tasmania. You know, and I think Australia's a lot, Australians are largely driven by lifestyle. And I think those lifestyle markets are, you know, still performing pretty well. Um, I think, you know, we've got record prices in Hobart and Hobart's been one of those cities that's continued to see record pricing for, you know, a fairly substantial period of time now. But even Hobart, is showing signs of slowing down in terms of its pace of growth. They still nudge slightly higher over the most recent quarter. But it, again, it's not to the level that we were seeing last year. Right. What about sort of homes versus units? Because after, during the pandemic, or at least sort of in the, you know, the months afterwards, people were talking about sort of the great sort of, you know, People wanting to get larger homes, move out of the city, uh, wanted more space. Everyone was going to be working from home, uh, and sort of units went off the boil a little bit. And I guess also the lack of migration um, might have had an impact on that as well. Are we seeing any? Uh, how do you sort of see homes versus units sort of looking ahead for the next twelve months? Yeah, look, I do think units are the one to watch because what we saw over the most recent quarter is house, uh, it was the first time, sorry, in almost three years that unit prices across our combined capital cities outperformed house prices. Right. So generally what we're seeing is in terms of a pullback in price has been more substantial for house prices. And that's because during the pandemic, as you said, we saw this acceleration in house price growth as people wanted more space. They were able to work from home and they wanted to push further afield from where they were 
worked. Um, and what that created was this record price gap between houses and mm -hmm. units uh, across our capital cities. We've got that narrowing now. And I think, you know, there is perceived value in units. We've also got an extremely tight rental market. It's a landlord's market across every single capital city. I think this is luring for those astute investors that are, you know, out there looking for their next investment property. And I think particularly that perceived value where, you know, even for owner occupiers, for first home buyers looking to get onto the market, the level of price growth that we've seen for houses, they have not been able to keep pace. And I think it's looking for that affordable alternative. And, you know, unit prices do tick that box. Now looking ahead, we've got potentially the Reserve Bank increasing interest rates uh, on Tuesday week. And, but we are in a spring, or at least coming into spring, particularly in the warmer uh, capitals. And, uh, that brings more activity and more action. And uh, you know, what, how do you sort of see the next sort of three to six months playing out in the market? Look, it's been really interesting even watching clearance rates, how they've performed over that winter mm -hmm. period. And, you know, what we've got now in clearance rates is they seem to have stabilised a little bit. And, you know, dare I say, even edging slightly higher. I mean, they're much weaker than what they were. And I think now that we're approaching spring as well, as you said, it's that heightened activity. We do see a, uh, an increase in listings. I think for buyers, what they'll be able to approach spring, you know, spring this year, is with time on their hands. I think they know that they've got choice on the market. I think they're not willing to um, overpay or mm -hmm. compromise. So I think, you know, what we've seen particularly from sellers as well is I think sellers are better at pricing to meet the market now as well. I think, you know, it takes a while for that pricing adjustment to feed through. And I think, you know, it's probably one of the things and um, reasons why we're seeing those clearance rates stabilise. But I mean, in short, what I think spring will be is opportunity really for buyers because there is going to be an increase in supply. We've got overall supply on the market tracking higher. There is more choice. I think, you know, we're seeing homes still sell pretty quickly but they're not selling quickly as they once were. And I think as long as you're a seller and you're coming to market with a realistic pricing to meet that buyer expectation, you'll get a timely sale. Um, and, you know, really in the grand scheme of things, we have seen a pullback in price, but that pullback really hasn't been much compared to what we saw during the, that upswing. Now, just to put you on the spot to, uh, to finish the interview, Nicola, if you were uh, a keen investor right now, where, what state or city or part or region or house or unit would you, what are the areas you'd be looking at right now? So look, all of my picks are probably past their boom, um, but I would be picking that lifestyle uh, location. I think it depends upon if I wanted the capital growth or the cash flow. Mm -hmm. You know, if I wanted something that was negatively geared, I'd absolutely be looking towards Sydney. You know, Sydney's rental market has tightened, and I think with overseas migration uh, returning, I think it is a, a competitive rental market, and it's probably only going to get more competitive. I think in terms of capital growth, I'd still be looking towards some of those um, more affordable, lower priced lifestyle markets. And dare I say, even uh, regional Tasmania um, can offer that. Okay, well, we'll put you down for regional Tasmania, but uh, is, that, is that the one you're looking at most? Or is it, uh, you know, when you say um, more lifestyle markets, is that presumably around any of the major capitals, is that correct? Or yeah, 
coastal area, hinterland location, anywhere, you know, even when you look at the interaction between prices in the Byron LGA and Ballina LGA, you know, Ballina was always deemed that kind of poor man's Byron, you know, it was that more affordable, seemed phenomenal rates of growth. It's areas like that, that you can see that kind of gentrification coming through. And you can see those other LGAs that have seen, an, you know, we've got a, a, a median house price in Byron above that of Sydney. And, you know, we've got other neighbouring areas rolling off of that back of that. So they're the types of areas I would look to. I would look to the, you know, those kind of bridesmaid areas that are, haven't quite seen the level of growth of some of these more gentrified locations. Okay, we'll mark you down for a bridesmaid area. I really like that phrase. That's uh, Nicola Powell, the uh, Chief of Research and Economics at Domain. Well, joining me now is Simon Presley from Propertyology, and he's got a really interesting topic to talk about. But And despite the fact that he's looking more modern and groovy nowadays, the topic itself sounds so shockingly boring, but it's not, and we'll prove to you in a moment. Simon, what is this headline of yours about infrastructure? Infrastructure is like superannuation. People instantly fall asleep. But it is really important to property investors, isn't it? Uh, look, it is. Um, it's often uh, the undoing of some um, poor property investment decisions where people think, you know, simply the construction of a, of a hostel or a university is going to make a local market boom. It's, it's never as simple as that. But this is arguably the most interesting research report that, that we've ever produced. Um, if you're interested in economics, if you're interested in sport, if you're interested in real estate, um, any or all of those things, um, th this report is jam-packed full of it. Um, sporting infrastructure, specifically stadiums and, and integrated entertainment facilities is the, the focus of this topic, mm. um, Peter. And we, we feel strongly that of all the different types of infrastructure, if you think of airports, uh, seaports, hospitals, universities, train stations, you name it, um, an elite sporting stadium has the single biggest positive impact on a community of all those different um, infrastructure types. Give us a, a standout example that proves the point. Well, if you think of the um, regional city of Geelong, um, you know, Australia's 10th largest city, Geelong is the hometown of the second oldest sporting team in this country and one of the most successful sporting teams, elite sporting teams in this country in the Geelong AFL Cats. The role of sport, not just in Geelong, but using Geelong as an example, the role of sport, if you have a think about it. So according to official government statistics, six and a half out of 10 Australians participate in sport. When your hometown has a team participating in a national competition, it gives all of that community something in common, a sense of purpose. And I'd argue that there's nothing more than sport that gets a bigger critical mass all interested in at the same time. What does sport do? Well, we spend hundreds of billions of dollars as a country every single year on, on health-related things. Sport gets people active. It gets people more conscious about their, their diet. It reduces expenses on you know, health, health costs on obesity and, and, and heart disease and things like that. Um, important social issues. There's a lot of, um, particularly young people who see sporting heroes as role models. Mm. And I would argue that um, a role model in sport 
um, doing a, a, a post-game interview talking about the importance of not having drugs or domestic violence or those sort of things, that young person is going to listen to that athlete a lot more than they are some boring politician. Would you agree? Most definitely. Um, so it does, and it encourages young people, especially some, some young people who might have had a, a troubled upbringing, uh, might not be necessarily great academically, but, it, but they might be good in the backyard with a cricket bat or the football or the soccer ball or the basketball. Um, and they, and they, they see role models, they identify with that, and that gives them a, a sense of purpose. Um, so there's so many good things that come from sports, specific to property markets. When governments and, pro- and the private sector invest in elite sporting stadiums, particularly these days, when I say integrated, they're attaching to these stadiums, and not, it's not just the stadium itself, it's um, Centre of Excellence next door, it's uh, entertainment precincts, hotels, restaurants surrounding it. Adelaide Oval and, and the new stadium in Perth are great examples of building large, world-class entertainment precincts. So there's tens of thousands of jobs in the construction of these facilities, but then it's all the hospitality-related businesses once it's completed. It's people travelling every second weekend um, from all over the country to go and watch their sporting team. Let's say you're a Parramatta, Parramatta um, follower in the NRL and your, your team is playing the North Queensland Cowboys. You might make a long weekend of it and go up to beautiful North Queensland in, in Townsville, especially this time of year when the weather is pristine. Um, so, so many things come from from elite level sporting stadium investments. Yeah, and I guess the, the classic example f- from my neck of the woods is uh, Homebush Stadium. Like you, you wouldn't have gone to Homebush unless you wanted to get assassinated as a young man. You know, it was a, a, a tough area. It was a home of uh, abattoirs and stuff like that. Look at it now. There's a complete precinct, an entertainment precinct, at the, the land values all around it, the, the escalation of apartments, all that sort of stuff. It's a really a- attractive area for young people and older people to live nowadays. And you're right, all the extra facilities even makes it more attractive. Yeah, Homebush is a great example. Another one, our report's got a, maybe four or five um, case studies mm. in there, but one we reference is a at this stage a proposal uh, in Hobart. Now, the, the, the most popular sport in the state of Tasmania has always been AFL. But Tasmania is the only team that doesn't participate in the elite level national competition. And later this month, we'll find out whether they, um, whether Tasmania is successful in their in their pitch to be a participant in the in the national AFL team. Now, a big part of that is the commitment from the state government to um, to develop a world class elite stadium. And I would argue the most pristine real estate in Australia. Mm. Constitutional dock that's famous for the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. There's a big parcel of land there right on the Derwent River that they're proposing, if they're successful um, with this AFL bid, of building an, an elite stadium there and also upgrading the existing stadium in Launceston, mm. which already hosts half a dozen games a year for the Hawthorne AFL team and it also hosts Big Bash cricket in the summer. So if that project, uh, if that team uh, bid was successful, there's gonna be about a billion dollars in infrastructure investment, mostly in Hobart, but, but, but a bit in Launceston as well. Mm-hmm. And already um, Tasmania has had 16 consecutive quarters, Peter, where it's been ranked number one in Australia um, in terms of the state economic performance. Yeah. So um, things like this can do wonders for local economies on a long-term sustainable basis. 
And property markets, it's always been an economic story. Yeah, and I, as I was just listening to you, I, I thought, you know, like the, the whole SCG Moorpark complex has been upgraded over the years, and, and all the suburbs around it, from the, the, the more expensive ones on the eastern suburbs right into Redfern, all those places, they're, all their house prices have escalated. In Melbourne, around the MCG, Richmond was once upon a time a cheap suburb. Now it's a really high-priced suburb. You go all the way around to, I guess, Albert Park and all that sort of... It's all just escalated and it's all been linked to infrastructure around sport and entertainment. Now, great story to go with a, a highly impressive-looking Simon Presley. He's clearly lifted his presentations <laughs> um, you know, for the sake of business and success. Give us an area, you mentioned uh, Tassie, but as you also know, Tassie house prices have gone through the roof over the last X number of years. Where do you think, <laughs> where do you think a, a, a potential property investor who takes on board your, your lesson around infrastructure, where's a great suburb or town to think about investing in? I'll give you a few. I'm feeling generous today because you put me in good spirits, Peter. I okay. mentioned Townsville already. Um, yeah. You know, so that stadium was completed in uh, 2020, just as COVID started. March 2020, that stadium opened and it hosted State of Origin and mm. um, NRL finals um, last year as well. But what the stadium is built around the stadium um, is what used to be industrial land, similar to your homebush so that is that is going to unfold progressively over the next 10 years. Um, un understated major regional centres such as Mildura. Now, Mildura is Australia's 43rd largest city. Just completed stage one of an enormous sporting infrastructure project there. That's going to put it in good stead to host pre-season um, AFL games, uh, big bash cricket in the summer. The visitor economy um, will do wonders from that. It's already a popular place for people to have you know, long weekends, yeah. enjoy the Murray River and the and the local food and booze. So that's a good one. Um, Orange in, in New South Wales, um, you know, is, is understated. Uh, whereas Albury-Wodonga, arguably Australia's most uh, um, successful basketballer, Lauren Jackson. Albury is her home city and, uh, and sport is an incredibly important um, industry uh, for the Albury-Wodonga region, really strong um, property market with a bullet. Yeah, very impressive. Every time I drive through there going to Melbourne, you just get staggered at the magnitude of the, the growth, you know, the, the Harris Farm Markets Complex, the Bunnings Store. It's just huge. It's like you expect of a, a major city. In fact, they're, they're even bigger than what I've seen in Sydney and Melbourne. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah, um, one just come to mind. You know, many people have spent the last two weeks watching the Commonwealth Games. Well, in this, this time in four years, those Commonwealth Games will be held in regional Victoria. Those who like the track and field events, if you, like me, you know, stayed up late um, uh, over the last fortnight watching those events, this time four years' time, on your device, you will be watching all those events being hosted in the beautiful regional Victorian city of Ballarat. Mars Stadium that's already used to host um, elite-level soccer and elite-level AFL will be redeveloped over the next couple of years, and that will be the main stadium for the 2026 Commonwealth Games. Yeah, staggering. Simon Presley, thanks for joining us, mate. My pleasure, Peter. Have a great day, mate. That's the show for tonight. If you want more great insights, go to switzerreport.com.au. And in the today's edition, Tony Featherston asks, are car sales seek 
an REA buys, and if so, at what price? You'll see more at switzerreport.com.au. We'll be back next week. See you then.